our hallmark is the introduction of the Simatohan oryx, which is the most dramatic of the four species of oryx in Africa and and the Arabian Peninsula. It is a beautiful, beautiful beast, and um, it's a global tragedy that it was allowed to go extinct in the first place. Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith. Today, I'm going to be speaking to a legendary conservationist, John Watkin, the outgoing chief executive of Sahara Conservation. John and his team have been charged with restoring a truly immense landscape in Africa's northern Sahel region, even reintroducing species that had either disappeared or nearly disappeared, the Adax, Scimitar horned oryx, various species of gazelles. It's a truly extraordinary story of very challenging work in one of the most difficult parts of Africa. John, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. You're welcome, Ben. It's very nice to be together finally to talk properly about conservation. Um, John, just just starting with you, you grew up in Zambia. Yeah, my parents were very adventurous and uh, my father moved out to Zambia as a telecommunications engineer for the police and my mum was a teacher locally. So uh, they moved out with two, the first two kids and then my younger brother and I were born in Zambia. And, and were you always a passionate nature lover? And did you always know you were going to work in, in restoration? It was pretty much hardwired from the age of seven, um, as far as I can remember. But yes, my first dream was to be an Olympic athlete, win the high jump gold medal and sell that gold medal for a vast amount of money and create an area for nature. That's fantastic. It's like the philanthropist Sir Christopher Hone, on whose foundation I sit as a trustee, once said to me... Um, showed me a photograph of some children on a um, on a rubbish dump that he saw during his travels off to university. And he said, Ben, I didn't think to myself, if I get rich, I'll help those children. I thought to myself, I'm going to get rich in order to help those children. And of course he did. And his foundation is now one of the biggest uh, nature and, and, and humanitarian foundations in Europe. So you knew from a very early age, like Sir Christopher Hone, that you wanted to devote yourself to, to these things. How did you get into conservation? Where did you start? So we moved from Zambia when I was nine years old to the New Hebrides in the Pacific. And then in 1980, came to UK. And then it was a pretty desperate, difficult path. But I was pretty committed to the idea of working as a field conservationist. And fortunately, I've discovered a place called the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust in Slimbridge in Gloucestershire. And thanks to some incredibly important people and great mentors at that uh, the Wildfire Wetlands Trust, I found that there was a career in conservation in wildlife biology. Uh, and that really did turn me around. So once I completed my degree, uh, I went on to do a master's at Durham University, but was very, very fortunate to study flamingos in the Camargue at the Tordovala Research Centre in the south of France. And um, that, again, was another huge turning point in my, in my life. Just It gave me a, a very different perspective on conservation globally. So, John, when did you then get involved in the Sahel? How did you come across that region? I had known of the formation of the Sahara Conservation Fund um, back in 2004 when it was first created. Um, I had just moved from working in Kenya, Tanzania and Congo, to the States. Actually, I'd had a plane crash in Garamba National Park in 2003. And I, as I walked away from the plane crash, I was convinced I had to find a proper job and stop <laughs> risking a lot to try and you know further my career. So I uh, moved to, to Washington, D.C. to work for the Critical Ecosystem Partnership Fund, which is a, a donor program supported by seven major donors. 
and I was with them for 10 years. But during that time, I'd met Steve Monfort, who was the initial, the former founding president of the association. And um, he had worked with John Newby for many years on on trying to promote the conservation of the Sahara and Sahel. And John Newby had been a lone voice for many, many decades at this point, uh, promoting the the importance of the Sahara and the Sahel region and and trying to keep it conscious in people's minds when it was really a conservation orphan. Okay, can you paint a picture for me of what the Sahel might have been like before the advent of motorized vehicles, uh, guns, and large numbers of domestic grazing animals? I mean, how, how was this landscape in, in prehistory? So, you know, I find it um, difficult when people call it a desert because it's not deserted. Um, there is an awful lot of biodiversity. There's an awful lot of nature there. A lot of it's very specialized and highly adapted to the extreme conditions. And then you've got very seasonal rainfall, very low, but very seasonal rainfall. So at points in time, you can have, you would have had vast plains of beautiful grasses with, you know, quite low densities, but vast numbers of, of desert antelopes throughout the entire Sahel and, and Sahara region. Um, each species was adapted to a different niche within that whole environment. And this straddled the entire region, which comprises 16 countries in Africa. You know, the Sahara is the size of continental US or China. Uh, so it's a vast, vast uh, realm. Um, it also, you know, provides us with a huge number of ecosystem services in terms of generating wind from the heat of the of the sun raising, causing the the thermals off the sand. And there are dusts that are picked up from Paleo Lake Chad and deposited on the Amazon forests that fertilize the forest. Um, so we're all tied to the Sahara in one way or another, and we always have been. Um, I, I- when we talk about the area that your organization, Sahara Conservation Fund, is focused on, are we talking about the Sahara Desert itself, the interior of the desert, as well as the Sahel, or are you principally focused on that on that shore around the around the periphery of the desert? So the majority of our operations are in Chad and Niger, and in Chad we actually uh, are working with the government of Chad on the management of a, a reserve called the Wadi Rime Wadi Ashim Faunal Reserve. It's the size of Scotland, so it is a vast, vast area. If Chad was a donut, the the centre, the whole whole would be the size of the reserve. It's the fourth largest country in Africa, so you know these are very huge areas, and that reserve straddles the isocline between the Sahel, the grassy shore, and the and the Sahara Desert in the interior. And what what are the principal herbivorous species that would have been found there, and that, and that you're working on restoring? So the main, that our hallmark is the reintroduction of the Simato oryx, which is the most dramatic um, of the four species of oryx in Africa and, and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, it is a beautiful, beautiful beast. And um, it's a global tragedy that it was allowed to go extinct in the first place. So you, you say that the Simato oryx fell extinct. Where were the last remaining individuals? So anecdotally, I think it was in Chad. And I think when John Newby was based in Chad as a United Nations volunteer in 1971 onwards, and then he moved to Niger, um, he did have reports uh, of Adex and Simitondorex from both Chad and Niger on the border region between the two countries. And some individuals of, of the Simitondorex remained in captivity in Abu Dhabi, right? So I think... Um, the Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed um, had fallen in love with the Simiton Dorex and asked whether he could have some for his private collection. And I think that coincided with some of the other wildlife entrepreneurs trying to also take some from different populations and, and provide them to zoos around the world. 
they're a beautiful animal, but also they can't jump very, very high. So they, they make really good <laughs> exhibits because you don't have to fence to three or four meters high as you have to do with eland and other species. So, you know, there was a, a, a population in captivity, taken into captivity, which was the, uh, as, a, as an arc, it was really the, the source population for the reintroduction program. But the problem was they were taken from just one population, I, I think. I, I don't know the, the specific details, but because of the genetic diversity in the individuals that were found being very narrow, we realized that they were taken from probably only one population possibly in Chad. And Abu Dhabi itself subsequently went on to sponsor the return of captive-born scimitar hondorix to Chad um, in, in the last few years. How did that come about and how has it gone? So the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi should be credited fully with their activities in, in conserving not just the scimitar hondorix but also the Arabian oryx and many, many other species that they have piloted and pioneered the reintroduction of. Um, and they have been extraordinary in terms of their support uh, to all of the activities, both in Abu Dhabi with the breeding centers and also um, facilitating the reintroduction programs. John Newby, when he left Wildlife uh, WWF, he went to work for um, the Environment Agents Ab- Abu Dhabi for a period. And it was there that he was able to work with um, the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi to hatch the plan to to try and release the scimitar and oryx back to the wild. Uh, and that involved a series of steps that happened many, many years before the first releases that took place in 2016. But the success of the reintroduction program cannot be denied. Since 2016, we have released 263 individuals into the wild. And since that time, they have bred up to over 600 as of March this year. Um, the, in terms of return on investment, if you want to talk in financial trading terms, uh, it's an incredible return investment. If they'd been monetized, we'd be very, very wealthy. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And, and, and the narrow genetic base of that surviving population turns out not to have been an issue through, through careful management in captivity and so on. Absolutely. We work very closely with the authorities um, in Chad, but also with the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, and uh, Edinburgh University on testing all of the genetics um, to make sure that they've got as broad a foundation of, of genes as possible, which allows them to withstand a disease outbreak or a, an extreme year of extreme drought or extreme wet. So the restoration of the scimitar horned oryx, this extraordinary grazing antelope in the Sahel and, and, and the Sahara, after having become completely extinct in the wild, is sort of a poster child for captive breeding and reintroduction. I mean, this really does work. If the will is there, it happens. And in this case, it was the Environment Agency of, of Abu Dhabi that did it in partnership with the Chad government. And now you say there's uh, sort of six or 700 of, of these extraordinary animals now roaming free in Chad. How many could there be? I mean, to, to what extent can this species reclaim its entire former range? Well, that's a very big question. For the reintroduction project into the Wadi Rui and Wadi Ashim faunal reserve to be considered a success, we need to get to a minimum of 3,500 animals uh, and above to have a core breeding population of 500. Um, so we are a long way from from that threshold of, of sustained population. Only a fifth of the animals are considered core breeding population? So you've got the age structure, you've got animals which are reproductively redundant, you've got juveniles. So we estimate that um, you have to get to um, about 3,500. Uh, there's a book that came out recently by Millie Kerr called Wilder, 
And she describes very elegantly the, the threshold for success for this project. But that's just looking at this one population in Wadi Rumi, Wadi Ashim. There's discussions about trying to expand the reintroduction and reinforcement projects to energy reserve in Chad, but also talking with the government of Niger about reintroducing Simatondorex to the Gadabeji Biosphere Reserve. These are all prime locations for Simatondorex. And it would actually then help in making sure that we've got more than eggs in one basket. The same species exist around the full periphery of the Sahara Desert. It's not a different species on the northern part as compared with the southern part. They move around. No. So Marwell Zoo have done incredible work uh, in reintroducing Simatodorex to Tunisia, into the southern part of Tunisia. Um, and there have been other attempts at reintroducing ADAX into Morocco and, and uh, again in Tunisia. So there's some uh, precedent there for trying to bring all these populations back by doing isolated reintroduction projects that hopefully will allow the, the populations to increase and eventually spread to throughout the former range. And the scimitar horned oryx and the adex were the two large antelopes that were most prevalent in the Sahel. T- tell us about the adex. Did, did that go extinct in the wild? No, but there are less than 50 thought to remain in the Termit Tintuma uh, National Reserve in, in northern Niger. Um, so when we talk about a species being critically endangered, you're talking about the last few uh, remaining individuals. In fact, uh, I, I really get frustrated with conservationists talking about you know, in, in vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, because that doesn't resonate with the general population as a, at large. And uh, actually, Australians have a much better approach, which is buggered, and you can guess the other categories, and the final one is done. So <laughs> I think we should actually, as the French say, they vulgarize the terms to make it resonate more with the general public. But uh, yeah. I love that. So what is the strategy for, for saving the adex? Because the, the scimitar hondoric seems to be on the way to restoration. What what's, is a similar strategy there? Captive breeding, reintroduction? So because some individuals exist in the wild state, it would be a reinforcement project. And IUCN define these two terms very strictly about reintroduction, which is reintroducing species to where it used to be. And reinforcement is adding individuals to an already uh, wild living population. Um, so we we adhere to those terms very clearly. One of the terms we don't use often is rewild, which has become very um, sexy in, of late. But actually, when you translate it into la- other languages, it doesn't come across particularly well. So we, we're very committed to the reintroduction of Simitondorix and the reinforcement of ADEX populations. A core recommendation of the IUCN in, in respect of species reintroductions and reinforcements is that the original threat to those species are removed before you start putting them back. Uh, presumably the principal threats were, were hunting with guns and uh, overgrazing by domestic livestock. Now, how are those two problems tackled in these national parks today? We strive for coexistence. Actually, the fate of the Simitar Norix was more related to civil conflict in the areas. And during any period of war, all wild meat is considered protein for troops and for people. Um, and that's the world over. There are no limits on that. So that was the ultimate demise was you know, just the amount of pressure on them. And I think also once they got to below a certain density, they didn't interact with each other, so there wasn't enough breeding. They needed to be at a certain critical number for them to maintain their, their populations. There's a time lag between when a species um, goes biologically extinct and actually then is declared extinct in the wild. So the, we think the Simtondorix was no longer existing in the wild in 1980, but it wasn't declared extinct until 2000. Um, so there is this time lag between events happening and then the species going extinct, um, which we have to bear in mind because that's an important 
period to say, look, it's it's now beyond a threshold where we can't do anything but re- reinforce or reintroduce. So poaching is not the major issue today. Pretty hard to police poaching in these vast remote areas that, that you're talking about. There's a lot of folklore and, and a lot of great respect for uh, Simiton Doric and Alex by local pastoralists and the local people because a lot of the elders remember oryx and addicts from when they existed, uh, when they were children and, and they were saw them around. And also there was a, um, a sort of equal transhumance between the oryx, the addicts, and people moving with the rains and the grazing pastures um, growing. So culturally there's this huge um, stake in in conserving the symptom oryx and the addicts. Um, and that's been a huge benefit to us. Um, so poaching is not the most uh, immediate threat things that have happened is a vast increase in the numbers of livestock. And that is not from pastoralists per se, who wander um, through the traditional migratory routes um, following the grazing, but that's more from commercial grazers. So um, very wealthy individuals with a vast head of livestock, um, having people go into the reserve with several thousand head of, of camels, goats, donkeys, sheep, and, and grazing them to get fat to sell in the commercial centres. And how do you tackle that issue, especially if it's powerful individuals that own all those animals? Trying to emphasise the need for coexistence and the cultural heritage. Uh, I was thrilled when I was last in Chad that the new 5,000 Central African franc note has elephant, scimitar, oryx and addicts printed on it. It's a, it's a very beautiful, beautiful thing to see. That's amazing. What, what about wild equines, John? Did you have a, a wild ass, for example, or any other kind of uh, wild horses that existed in the Sahel previously? Not in this region. Um, the African wild ass occurs in the east, more towards Somalia and, and, and eastern Ethiopia. So uh, that's not a species that we are focusing on at the moment. And, and the smaller grazers that we'd see if we visited would be the gazelles. What, what kinds of gazelles and what sort of population state are they in today? So our indicator species is the Dorcas gazelle, which is a beautiful, um, speedy little gazelle. And we did an aerial count in, in late uh, 2021, and we estimated that we have a population of about 44,000 Dorcas gazelles in, in the reserve. Now, their presence in that area of the reserve, as I said, is our indicator that it's a healthy environment for both wildlife and, and people. But just in that reserve, how many Dorcas gazelles would there be around the entirety of the Sahel and Sahara region? Um, there are pockets of populations um, here, there and everywhere, but I think the greatest population is in Wadi Rum, Wadi Shim. But uh, more importantly than the Dorcas gazelle, which is doing well, is the Dama gazelle. And there are less than 100 individuals of the Dama gazelle in two or three small populations between Chad and Niger. And this is the most elegant, uh, most beautiful gazelle you will see. It's got a very long neck. It switches between being a browser in the dry season and being a grazer in the wet season. It's incredibly fragile, um, but extremely elegant. And one of the things that Sahara Conservation has done since uh, January 2020 was initiate a program of captive breeding in Wadi Rimi and Wadi Ashim with a number of individuals, which now we've got up to 22. And then by the end of this year, we want to start a reinforcement program of the wild population. Wadi Rimi and Wadi Ashim has about 50 uh, wild living dama gazelles in the reserve. And it's been static at 50 for a very long time. So we'd like to know why they're not recruiting when the Dorcas gazelle is doing so well. And, and do these grazing animals, the big ones and the small ones, do they venture out into the dunes and into the real heart of the Sahara? Or, or do they typically stay on the kind of grasslands of the Sahel regions? We have satellite collars on many of the individuals and we're able to track their movements. And 
we are analyzing those data to see whether they are starting to resume any of the traditional seasonal movements. And as yet, we haven't um, seen too much of that direct relationship to the moving north of the rain to coming back south in, in the in the dry season. We hope that that will start to happen as they become more and more adapted. But these animals that, you know, the first generation, the first, the individuals released had no cognizance of living in the wild and the dangers that persisted from fires from people. We have recently published a paper which looked at whether they sought to avoid the presence of people and pastoralists, which is very much the case. They do not want to associate with people. What we have done recently is also prepared a management plan for the protected area. And within that, we've stated that there are three core areas that should be for strict conservation. They should be areas left for native biodiversity and for the reintroduced species. So that involves a considerable level of behavior change by the pastoralists to raise awareness of the importance, talk about coexistence, and then have people starting to apply law enforcement down the line to say, look, this is an area now that's been stipulated as a, a core area. And you're welcome to go through it, but you can't stay in here for any duration. Um, you can have maybe two nights, 48 hours, and then you have to move on. But everybody's competing for the same resource, which is grass, and that the quality and the abundance of grass is determined by, by the rainfall. And that is, you know, ultimately the source of conflict between wildlife and people. John, what about the predator species from this region? I mean, we read in the books of, of the existence of lions right up to the Mediterranean shore of Tunisia and Morocco. I've, I've seen a, a photograph taken by a French airman in the 1920s of what's suggested to have been the last Atlas lion in Morocco. Um, lions, leopards, cheetahs, wild dogs, wolves. What, what, what species may have existed in the Sahel region and, and, and what are you doing to bring them back? So dealing with predators was one of the few things that the pastorists said when this project was first discussed. And they were like, please do not bring any predators back. There are a number of small carnivores within the reserves. Um, again, a lot of them are nocturnal to try and mitigate the, the extreme heat. But no, we um, there were reports of cheetahs, leopards, perhaps lion. But again, these areas are, are very, very seasonal in terms of rainfall with very little rain. So anything that establishes a territory will struggle during the times that there is no uh, prey in that area because you can't just move your territory. So we are not actively working on predators. We are mindful of their existence and we make sure that our monitoring teams are looking for any signs. For me, it would be fantastic if we actually saw um, a desert cheetah come back to the area. For Again, a great indicator would be when the first scimitar norix is predated by a cheetah or, or a lion. But where would a cheetah come back from? I mean, does North Africa have any cheetahs left? We assume so. Um, there's a lot of incidental uh, evidence that they are, they're still present Again, very low densities, very cryptic, not trying to draw attention to themselves, but trying to just survive in um, in the landscape. Despite the conditions, it is still you know a very important area for pastoralists. So there are a lot of people around. There are also new threats coming from gold miners and oil exploration. So you know things have changed, and the countries have changed. So we have to be mindful of how we work within that that shifting landscape. But cheetahs, of course, tend to do well in the absence of larger predators. So the places where cheetahs often thrive are at what appear to be the ecological margins, but they're actually places where there are fewer or no lions, hyenas, leopards, and more powerful predators, which means cheetahs can have a free run at, at prey and also have plenty of time to eat their prey in peace. So if any predator were to make a return to the reserve in which you're working or to the wider Sahel region, 
the cheetah would probably be the most likely candidate. There's evidence that there's some cheetahs be- being seen around, but actually nothing confirmed. So we're always optimistic. Um, if they were going to come from anywhere, they'd probably come from the mountains between Chad and Sudan on the east, um, where they could probably survive and not be too disturbed and then come down through the the wadis, which flow east to west um, into the reserve. John, you're working in one of the most troubled parts of the world. And you've got the rise of Islamist insurgency and and uh, uh, Boko Haram to your west and the Al-Shabaab to your east. Um, the French military have recently given up trying to quell um, uh, is- Islamist violence in, in Chad and, and neighboring countries. How much of a hindrance is that for your work? And how difficult does that make it for wildlife to survive in this region? Ben, that's a very targeted question. We are mindful of security. And actually, when I first started with Sarah Conservation, I developed a hierarchy of security, health, family, friends, work. And if the top four are not all in a good state, then let's leave the work to try and sort itself out. So we have to be mindful of the reality of working in these situations. We have had some security issues ourselves. We have also developed security protocols to try and mitigate or limit any risk to our team members overall. We have an incredible team, both in Chad and Niger, of some of the most inspirational colleagues I've ever had the joy to work with, who we're all dedicated to the cause and, and the mission of the organization. But within that, we have to acknowledge where we are and what we're doing. Um, so we try to take no risks whenever we can. And there are things that, that can happen. Um, I want to have a T-shirt printed which says, uh, for anticipators in preview, which means you have to anticipate the un- unexpected because that's what we work on. You never know what could happen at one day to the next in terms of vehicles breaking down, uh, having a, a difficult situation with, with some people wanting to have uh, assistance. You know, we have to be as flexible and, and, and respectful of the local culture and the local administration. We work as, as a guest in those countries. And I think if we always go in with that approach, then we'll, we'll, we should always be welcome. John, you, you told me last time we spoke that you decided to rename the organisation Sahara Conservation and to drop the word fund because you never have any money. What I'd like to know is what what would you do as an organisation if you did have oodles of money? If you suddenly had the kind of money enjoyed by um, uh, philharmonic orchestras and, and, and art galleries and other kind of objects of philanthropic attention, what's to be done by an organisation like yours if you were properly funded? So we've already identified a number of key sites where we'd like to promote the conservation of those those sites, which are important for all biodiversity, especially plants. And plants, and especially trees, are often overlooked in, in the conservation agenda because everybody likes the cute and fuzzies. So we'd, I would like to have a huge campaign of protected area management, improved management, um, training local people, trying to engage uh, disenfranchised youth in the environment and being stakeholders in their own in their own future. There's this program called the Great Green Wall, which um, I think has, is a good idea. And I think trying to get people re-engaged, especially youth, in being stewards for their own landscape and trying to you know, look after their environment and their uh, habitat rather than it being the government's. So geographically, if you were better funded as an organisation, you'd be working across a dozen or so countries across the entire Sahara and Sahel region. That would be the dream. Well, let's make it happen, John. I I think you're an absolute inspiration for doing the work you do in the region that you do it. It's a place of such extraordinary romance. And whilst it's a landscape that 
didn't necessarily have the huge abundance and kind of density of wildlife that you find in the East African grasslands. The wildlife that you do find in the region is just so beautiful and mysterious and on its last legs and saved really because of the work of Sahara Conservation. If we want to visit you, how, where, or is that just too difficult for ordinary people like me? No, um, it's complicated and uh, it's expensive, but no, it is possible. Um, what people would like to do is come for the actual arrival of the Adex and the Oryx from, from Abu Dhabi and then see the release into the quarantine enclosures. Um, that's one of the most extraordinary experiences you could ever have. So, you know, we can do that in very small numbers. We're not a tourist operation, um, but we do have a number of groups visit us throughout the year, um, dedicated photographic safaris, and we have other people um, who are on the circuit that includes Zakuma and Enedi National Parks and, and Cultural Reserve, and then they come to us in the, in, in the middle just for a night or two. The desert has its own charm, its own beauty. You do have to experience it at night to get the full experience of, of what it's like to be there because it's only at night when you can go out and see honey badgers and uh, aardvarks and, and all the stuff that you wouldn't see during the day. What a joy to spend that time chatting to John Watkin. I just can't get my head around the scale of some of these landscapes in which John and his team have been working. John is now off to pursue a new career, a new life in Florida. We wish him all the best. Thank you, John, for taking the time. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode talking about the Sahel with John Watkin, I'd be really grateful if you'd spread the word among your friends, go onto whatever platform you use and leave us a review, like the podcast series and so on. Uh, it, it matters a lot to us. Thank you. Next time, I'm going to be talking to my friend Pedro Prata of Rewilding Portugal. And Portugal is a surprisingly degraded place. A lot of the land has been converted to intensive agriculture or intensive monoculture forestry. And yet, in the huge Greater Coa Valley where Pedro lives and works, something magical and extraordinary is happening. I do hope you'll join me in my conversation with Pedro Prata next time. 